0: This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. So the whole act of being bored and being forced to be resourceful, I kind of compare it to growing up on a farm a generation or two ago where you, you couldn't just run out to the store and find something new. If something broke, you had to find a way to fix it with the stuff that you found on the boat. It was a little bit... You know, I mean, I think of Apollo 13 when they had, you're an astronaut, so you can kind of relate to this. I mean, that's an extreme example that if you're on a boat and all you have to fix your toy is a twist tie and a piece of tape, then you make it happen, right?
1: (laughs) I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. Will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at Explorers.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you. And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplorers.com. I had a blast talking with Jim Toomey a few episodes ago. Give number 75 a listen if you haven't already. And so I was really excited when he emailed me to ask if his story about heading off to sea for two years with his family would make for another good episode. Talk about an easy call. Read a few Sherman's Lagoon comic strips or spend a couple of moments with Jim and you are sure to want more of his company. Family afloat. Two Years Sailing the World with Two Kids and Two Captains is a delightful book. I swear it's written in cartoonist, who even knew there was such a language, with bits of wit and clever turns of phrase on every page, and Sherman's Lagoon strips salted in there. But there are also grand life lessons that we often only learn by tackling big challenges. So we'll talk about the unique joys of self-determined travel, the value of boredom, and how to tackle the challenge of going before you know. Enjoy. So Jim Toomey, I'm delighted to have you with me again on the podcast. Not so much to talk about your life story up to becoming a cartoonist, but some more recent adventures that you've had. Thanks for joining me again.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Kathy. I'm uh, I'm really excited to to be here and talk about our family sailing trip that we took a, a few years ago for spending two years on the ocean.
1: Yeah, I, I remember, I think was the last time you and I met at Ocean Prom in Washington. You were hinting that you were going to be off on a big adventure and kind of unplug for an extended time. I, I really didn't quite know that you meant two full years, pumping about as, as you put it in the in the title of your book, Two Years, Sailing the World with Two Kids and Two Captains, which right there tells you this had to be an interesting set of stories.
0: Right. Yeah. We didn't know we were going away for two years either. So it was kind of improvised. We had originally planned a year, and uh, a year's pretty easy to plan. When you drop off the planet for a year, a lot of people don't even realize you're gone. Which Show is itself next- a
1: frightening thought. <laughs> ha, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So we we hit the year mark somewhere around the Aegean Sea and decided, you know, we knew how to sail this boat, things were going well, and we weren't even close to seeing everything we wanted to see. So we, we extended it another six months, and then we decided to cross the ocean and extend it another six months. So two years was the end of it.
1: Let's go back to the front of that story, though. I, I laughed, as I said to you in an email, I chuckled or laughed out loud on essentially every single page. I, I know you're a great cartoonist and you get really cool snippets of dialogue into Sherman's mouth and the characters in Sherman's Lagoon, but there is such a thing as cartoonist prose and it's just <laughs> laced throughout all the texts of your book. It's quite delightful. But the story of how this all started out on the dead end in Annapolis is pretty wild. Tell us how that happened.
0: We were home on an ordinary night uh, in the fall and we heard screeching tires out front. We live in a dead end, and it turned out a hijacked airport shuttle ended up at the end of our road. And I looked out the window, and there were about ten state police cars. It was night, and the the whole neighborhood was illuminated with blue lights. There was a policeman in our front yard with a shotgun pointing at the shuttle that landed about fifty feet from our front door. There were several other police pointing rifles at it, and you know, fast forward to the end, it it ended peacefully. They finally arrested them, but. The conversation the next morning sort of started with, "There's a big world out there, and we uh, we I haven't seen a whole lot of it. And um, this world we're living in now has its ups and downs. And maybe we should revisit this whole idea of taking the kids away on a an extended sailing trip."
1: Well, you had done some sailing earlier in your life. Had your wife Valerie also
0: been a sailor? Not much. I had I had done a lot of day sailing. So the big difference between day sailing, we lived in San Francisco, and San Francisco can really tune up your sailing skills. The wind's always howling, the seas are always four to six feet, the commercial traffic is huge and it moves really fast, the bottom's made of granite, so it's very unforgiving if you don't read the chart. Um, So we just do a lot of day sailing. And the difference between day sailing and extended cruising, there's a lot of differences, but You know, one fundamental difference is you never anchor when you day sail, hardly ever. I did a lot of racing and you never anchor in a race. So your whole life sort of revolves around setting your anchor well when you when you live on a sailboat. And we learned the hard way that that's not such an easy thing to do.
1: Yeah, Yeah. common sailor's tale. And you've got wonderful stories about figuring out how to anchor the boat, dock the boat, and the unique way of lining up boats that they use in the Mediterranean, which is you don't put the pointy end towards the dock. You have to back down into the dock, into your slip, two inches away from the next guy.
0: Exactly. That's how they shoehorn boats into into European piers, docks, because they don't use so-called finger piers in between because it takes up too much room. So you are literally squeezing your boat in, in between two other boats. And usually the owners of the other boats are Standing on deck, carefully watching that you don't <laughs> you don't scratch their boat, and quite frequently these other boats are big mega yachts that are worth millions of dollars. And yeah. uh, so, the first few times you try that, it's pretty stressful. The, the med mooring process you have to you have to drop an anchor about a hundred feet away from the dock, and then back down, back up, and back down, and navigation parlance and backing up a boat is different it controls differently because the rudder and the proper are, are reversed. So it's uh, it's a completely different vessel when you're backing down a boat and you're trying to hit this very small gap and you're not even coming close. I mean, you're like wavering five feet to the left and right with an anchor that's, you know, dragging out the front. So first time we tried that, it was really, really difficult. And When we started trying it in heavy winds and then we tried it out in the wild with with trees and isolated coves and things. We finally got pretty good at it, but that was one of the challenges of European sailing.
1: Well, a lot of the things that struck me in your telling of the tale, you spent a good amount of time helping us understand the run-up and the preparations from logistics to finding the boat to bits of practice and things. But somewhere along the way, you sort of capture it very concisely by saying at some point you have to go before you actually know everything. What did that feel like when you hit that point and realized, oh,
0: here we go? Yeah, right. There's no there's no parachute. That's a good life lesson for a lot of things. The learning curve in sailing is very long and kind of shallow. You know, you spend a lifetime learning the subtleties. You can spend you can learn the basics in a day, but like a lot of things, it takes a lifetime to learn the subtleties. And so this learning curve, you always feel like you're climbing to the summit, you're never going to be at the top. And if you wait till you're at the top you're never going to go. So yeah. at some point on the learning curve where you clearly have more to learn, you have to make the decision to go on this voyage and learn the rest on the fly. It's the only way to do it. And, and the other thing is that you know a lot of people are waiting for all the stars to line up in your life that you maybe you're in the right financial position, the, the kids are the right age, you're you're in between jobs or you're in between houses or whatever and all those life variables never line up. So there's a big sacrifice in your life as well. I won't kid you. There's a lot. There was a lot of sacrifice in in our lives. Just saying goodbye to friends. We said goodbye to our pets for a couple of years. So there was a downside to it. That was painful, especially for the kids.
1: Yeah. Tell me a little bit more about your kids. I mean, you know, your young son was sort of the locked on his computer gamer, kind of typical. What, twelve years old when you started?
0: Yeah, he was ten when we started. Ten when we
1: yeah. started. Tell me more about what you observed changing in them through the course of this adventure.
0: The kids grew in a couple of ways that I don't think they could have grown at home, living a quote-unquote normal life. One was they got bored a lot. And kids don't get bored in modern life. They are constantly stimulated. Either we're pushing them to learn more at school or they're picking up a video game or they're on social media or whatever. But their waking hours are, are a constant stream of stimulation and distraction, frankly. And a lot of it is not a learning experience. It's just entertainment. And so the kids on the boat, they, they didn't have that internet connection. And they didn't have a lot of those toys. So they were forced to sort of do their own thing, to make up their own games, to build their own toys. You know, we had Lego kits, but after a while they were using the Lego pieces to build other things than what was in the kit. They've read a lot. They got interested in history. We we toured the Mediterranean, so the history was around us every day. Yeah. Um, and culture and cuisine and everything. So there was a flood of all that. And I think it, a lot of that kind of went over their heads, but some of it they really got fascinated with. My son William really became fascinated with Greek mythology, for example, and Roman mythology. And no
1: better way to do that than to be among all those places and exactly
0: right. And there was a, there was a lot of books for him to read on that. And some of them were fictionalized, but to sort of be immersed in that world was great. My daughter um, was surrounded by art, so almost every stop. I mean, there were the great stops like like Rome and Athens, but all the little stops along the way that aren't well touristed. They're they're just so rich in art and architecture and culture and cuisine and so forth that um, she was exposed to so much so much of that at at that age. It was amazing.
1: Yeah. And you know, in some respects, those smaller places, you know, they don't have the headline attractions of Rome or Athens. But because they're often less busy and less touristed, I've always felt I can get a more valuable experience there than being among a throng of tourists. This is unfair in some respects, but you know, a jaded tour guide or a museum guide that's done this every day for a thousand years. And you're in a small town and it's just the local person that does that pottery or makes that art or is that chef. And they're much more eager to tell you more genuine personal stories than you would get in the packaged information bits.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the whole concept of self-determined travel on a boat, a boat will get you to amazing places. Now, you can jump in a car and self-determine your own travel as well. It doesn't have to, as long as you're away from a, a tour bus in the, the touristed areas. But some of the places we landed in the boat were just breathtaking. We landed in a small village in Greece. and We were the only tourists there we got there by boat and it was way off the tour bus paths and just to sit at an outdoor restaurant and watch that whole village come to life all the all the people come out of their houses young old baby carriages couples teenagers gathering around the the city port and just playing games and socializing it's really a timeless image and an incredible experience that that's not on any map not on any tour guide
1: yeah I want to pick back up that thing you said about the Lego kits you had aboard. I remember reading a research study many, many years ago, comparing styles of play between children of different countries. And in a nutshell, it's highly simplified. If you gave a Lego kit to an American kid, they built the one or two or three things that was pictured on the kit. And then it was like they decided that it was exhausted. The set was broken. You, know, you check the three boxes and you're done. And European kids... Sometimes built the thing that was shown on the kit, but were more inclined to play in the way that that you said your kids started to play. They just imagined and invented other things. And the the blocks were tools to their imagination as opposed to a performance to show they could do what the planners had intended.
0: Right. Yeah. So the whole act of being bored and being forced to be resourceful, I kind of compare it to growing up on a farm a generation or two ago where you you couldn't just run out to the store. And find something new. If something broke, you had to find a way to fix it with the stuff that you found on the boat. It was a little bit, you know, I mean, I think of Apollo 13 when they, they had exactly. you're an astronaut, so you can kind of relate to this. I mean, that's an extreme example that if you're on a boat and all you have to fix your toy is a twist tie and a piece of tape, then figure you it make out. Make it happen, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's an important one. You know, one of the somewhat harrowing events you talk about probably around the well, it would be after your winter stop, I guess, in your first year out, you were having to try to beat a storm to get into the port of Rome. That comes across in in your telling of it in the book, like a real watershed moment for for all of you, for all four of you, because the kids had become pretty decent mariners by that point.
0: Yeah, you know, I said earlier that You can't be ultimately prepared. You have to make the leap at at some point. But when you do make that leap, it's important that you try to keep that learning curve to a point where you can get through it. In other words, you don't fall off and die.
1: Survival is a good outcome, yeah.
0: (laughs) Exactly. So if we had sort of started, if we had hit that Rome storm in our first week, we probably would have quit. You know, so we were lucky in in that regard that we hit that Rome storm six months into it when we were pretty seasoned sailors. We did hit some pretty bad stuff earlier in the cruise but it was again it was always a learning curve that was just steep enough for us to get over and then come out a better sailor a better voyager. And this applies to any any yeah. life goal. So Rome if you ask my son what you know what was the worst day of the cruise his one word answer is Rome and it was <laughs> It was a growing experience for us because, you know, storms were really on the top of our list of things that we we feared, just viscerally feared getting on a boat. And the Rome storm really delivered a storm. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, dark, big waves crashing yeah. over the bow. It was our image of a storm. We learned a few things. We learned to have a better plan B. Uh. We threw our plan B together kind of on the fly. We sort of always had a little bit of a plan B, but you know, like you're a pilot. And when you're a pilot, you always have to have an alternate airport, right? I mean, you have to, you have to write it down, put it in a plan.
1: Yeah. You have to have given that some good thought ahead of time because
0: exactly
1: altitude, you're losing altitude and losing gas. That's the wrong time to think you get a time out to plan.
0: No, you cannot multitask when a lot of things are are going wrong like that. The other thing um, is that I tell a lot of people that, you know, you should jump into an adventure like this maybe before you're ultimately ready, but you shouldn't fool yourself into thinking that technology is going to solve all your problems or it's going to get you up to the top of Everest or through a storm or or whatever. It's technology will get you out there, and sometimes technology fails. So in this case, our weather forecast. And you know about weather forecasts having I a
1: little bit about them, having
0: having run NOAA for a while. Um, sometimes they're wrong, and as sailors. Even the evolution of the weather forecast—even you could write a book on this—but it's so accurate nowadays with all the satellites and the buoys and the supercomputers and the artificial intelligence that you almost just assume it's going to be right. And in this case, it wasn't. The storm moved north a lot faster than the forecast told us it would. So uh, you have to be prepared for for those sort of yeah. failures along the way. Yeah.
1: With. Well, and we've all just seen that with Hurricane Ian. The storm went actually within the broad swath that the forecast predicted, but some folks actually looked at the little bright line down the center and said, well, that's exactly where it's going to be, forgetting that it's also going to be you know 50 miles wide. And then another life lesson that I took away, and again, you just capture it so succinctly, was the value and the importance of, of recognizing the start of a cascade, because bad outcomes usually start with some little thing, doesn't go quite right and then some other little thing and then some other and then some, it's like an avalanche is starting and, and the sooner you can recognize that that cascade is starting and shut it down the happier you're gonna be because if if the whole thing comes crashing down on you it's going to be a world of hurt
0: yeah and that was again I I think it was my pilot training that alerted me to the problem of a cascade a lot of catastrophes plane crashes for example yeah. or or shipwrecks are really just the last straw that breaks the camel's back after a string of catastrophes and And the sooner you recognize that, the better off you are. So things like, you know, making sure the kids are secure in their cabins. And if they are going to get seasick, which we knew they would in the storm, then we prepare them for that. We give them a bowl next to their bed and we give them seasick medicine and so forth. So you anticipate some of that stuff. When you're sailing, you anticipate reefing a sail means making the sail smaller in a storm so that the wind doesn't affect your sailboat as much. So you preemptively reef sails. Right. You preemptively rig the jack lines. You, you have to be ahead of your game Yeah. because as, as soon as you start getting behind on your game and you get distracted, that's when you can run aground. You can hit a rock. You can fall off. So it's all these, you know, seemingly one more problem deep that You wouldn't think that problem would sink the boat, but it's all those problems that led up to that and the distraction that sinks the boat.
1: Yeah, no single one of them would have, but the five or 10 of them all at once. And it often is, again, as we both know in flying, the last bit often is just the pilot's mind is saturated and unable to maintain the level of awareness of what the airplane's doing. And eventually, next thing you know, you've lost control. So you guys have been home now, what? Or you came back in 2017?
0: Right. So five years going on, five and a half years. Yeah. I mean, you've got lots
1: of memories, fabulous pictures, great souvenirs, a book out now, family afloat. But stepping back on a more personal level, what stays with you?
0: Well, personally, the just the confidence in going through things like the Rome Storm stays with me. I, I know that I can always get back on a sailboat and go anywhere now. So on a personal level, I like that feeling of freedom that I can do that. I think more importantly, as a, as a family coming out of this experience, um, having gone through this experience together, the Rome storm, the ice creams in Italy, the, the, (laughs) you know, living in the South of France and the hot chocolate in Italy, (laughs) right. All the, all the ups and downs of two years. And we're the only four people who knew all those ups and downs together. So as a family, I think we're a lot closer and we'll always be closer because of these shared experiences. Us four are the only people who who can talk about a lot of these experiences all of these experiences together. So as a family we I think we came away a lot tighter. We it sounds corny but we we like being together. We play games together and our dinners actually last a pretty long time. We're not all sort of engaged in our cell phones as much as a lot of families that I observe. And funny, you know when covid came around and the lockdowns happened and the virtual schooling and the virtual work. That was like a
1: no-brainer for you guys. They had two years to warm up.
0: Exactly. No, it was, (laughs) we didn't, we didn't miss a step. We just kind of dropped right into it. And, you know, there's a, it's difficult to find your own space when you're in a, sharing a house with a lot of other people. But one thing you learn when you're sharing a 500 square foot boat, a fiberglass box in the middle of the ocean with a bunch of other people is that you you find a way to find your own space. And if, if it's not a physical aloneness, you can mentally find a space and read a book in the middle of a lot of commotion and be alone. And that really helped us in COVID, just being able to find our own space amidst all this commotion of, of lockdown with three other people in your life.
1: Yeah. One rather more commodious space once you got back ashore than on, than on Sacre yes, Bleu.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: And how about the kids? What do you see lingering in them? Because they're now how old are they now?
0: My daughter's off to college. Um my son is a senior in high school, so they're 18 and 20 now. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I I love showing them the world when they were really young cuz I think when they're my age and older, when they're 80 and they can talk to their kids or grandkids about how they saw the pope in Rome in, when they were 16 and seeing Europe and the Mediterranean and North Africa and the Caribbean and everything in the year 2015, when 50 years from now, that's going to seem like ancient history. That's, that's a remarkable life point of view for them, a perspective for them. I think they've come out of it, you know, obviously they've come out of it more traveled and more aware of a lot of the, a lot of, a lot more of the world and its people and its culture. My daughter is off to go into college in in Europe. So oh. for her, You know, I think for most of her classmates, it was choosing between this American college and this American college. But she really cast a net all over the world to go to college. And she's going to school in Europe. And I think she's preparing for a global economy. She's getting an education that is not so American-centric, which I think will serve her well um, later in life. Whereabouts is she? She's at St. Andrews, Scotland, Yeah, University of St. Andrews.
1: Oh, cool. And Master William?
0: Yeah, William is uh, he's a senior. I think he came out of it really loving wanting to be an engineer. He just loves, you know, every day we they both helped us fix things and, you know, work on the engine and and the generator and the sails and so forth. And I think seeing all that sort of physical action on a boat, this mechanical device that this vehicle that brought us around for two years. I think that was something that I made an impression on him. So he's I think he's destined to be become an engineer for that.
1: I think there's something of a different kind of value to gain. I mean, he, in two years, they both gained considerable mastery over some of that stuff. I mean, this and the confidence that comes with knowing that you know how to do something and you know how to tackle something complex in the real physical world, not just I know how to get to level 46 in some or other game. I think there's a different life value and growth value to that kind of learning curve and development of mastery and all the all the confidence uh, and everything else that goes with it so it's very cool
0: the sailboat mast is 75 feet high and there was a one of the vhf antennas was wobbling and so the bolt was loose so we decided to send madeline up on the bosun's chair
1: and that's for those who don't know that's a little basically a, a seat a canvas seat on a pulley that runs up through the top of the mast and you just hoist who whoever the lucky or unfortunate soul, is depending on <laughs> your point of view. Right. They hoist them off the mast legs if you're lifting them up a tree.
0: Neither Valerie nor I wanted to do it. <laughs> but, I mean, we I ended up going up the bosun's chair a lot, but after a while, we, we sent the kids up. And for them, it was sort of fun, but she not only had to be 75 feet high, she had to know how to use a socket wrench. So, you know, I gave her a little righty-tighty, lefty-loosey lesson on socket wrenches at the top of a mast 75 feet high in a bosun's chair. So she definitely... Is more mechanically inclined, I think, than an average twelve-year-old at the time, anyway. And they came, yeah. they both came out of it a lot more mechanically inclined, which was which was great.
1: Sailing alone around the world—that's Joshua Slocum's title. Right. <laughs> yeah. You had, you had rather different set of hamsters and and various and sundry. Others. Yeah.
0: Sometimes I wish we were alone, but yeah. I was alone. But
1: <laughs> I don't know. It sounded like once or twice the hamsters got you a smile from a customs officer that might otherwise have been a bit snarky.
0: Well, there was there was a lot of that and. Portugal specifically, there was a customs officer. There is customs within the EU. They occasionally drop by the boat and, you know, want to know what you're, what's in your hold. So, right outside of Lisbon, one dropped by and they were sitting on the table filling out forms and the kids always had those hamsters out. So, <laughs> there was a box to check, are you carrying any animals? At that moment, he asked the question, <laughs> one of the hamsters walked right by his clipboard. So, he, he just kind of checked the yes box. We ended up smuggling. I guess I can say this on public media now, but uh, this is five, six years ago. So I, maybe the statute of limitations is up. But we we smuggled those hamsters past uh, customs and immigration uh, when we took them home um, oh. one Christmas. And they oh. were in Williams' pockets. And...
1: <laughs> Don't show up on the TSA scanners.
0: <laughs> exactly. No, they didn't show up in the uh, x-ray. <laughs> The hardest part was getting them past U.S. Customs, and they didn't even ask, <laughs> "Do you have live animals?" You know, you have a form to fill out, and there's yeah. there's a check, a box. Are you carrying live animals? And I checked yes. There's four questions, and the fourth question is sort of this catch-all: Are you carrying fruits, vegetables, agricultural products, live animals, blah blah blah? And I just checked yes, and the customs officer asked me specifically are you carrying any fruit because that's probably what he gets on a daily basis and i said well as a matter of fact we have an apple here here's the apple show him the apple william and so they took the (laughs) apple and they didn't ask us if we had hamsters so we walked right by
1: (laughs) probably not what one expects to find on a typical cruising
0: (laughs) the hamsters gave the kids something to do i mean they A lot of the responsibilities on a boat were adult responsibilities, and they were big people responsibilities. So the hamsters gave the kids a little bit of responsibility, especially in the younger part of the cruise. And I think that helped them a lot.
1: Yeah. Flipping through some pages here, I mean, I I could show you all the things I've underlined that were just... (laughs) Wonderful ways to put it, you know, gusts of wind that can create conditions that can change from picnic to panic in the time it takes to go below and get a beer.
0: I mean, yeah.
1: I mean, if you've ever been aboard a sailboat and had a squall line come at you, you know, it's sort of, oh yeah, I know that one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Now the weather changes really quickly in the med and a lot of those winds uh, are not in a forecast. In other words, you're, you're running along a shoreline with mountains. And uh, when you hit a valley, the winds will pick up 20, 30 knots. And the yeah. first three weeks of sailing off the coast of Spain, we hit 55 knot winds. And we had a full mainsail because it went from about 15 to 55 in five minutes. So it's very, it's very fluky winds, um, especially in the med. And um, they have things, so-called catapatic winds, which you know well, because your weather experience, but these are winds that kind of go down a face of a mountain. And they're like an avalanche with snow. They'd actually pick up yeah. speed like with their mass and most sailors use mountains as as a shield for wind they call it in the lee of of the mountains it's it's a calmer area which is common in the in the Caribbean that was common but in the med these winds tended to not just go off the, the tops and provide shelter they used to they tended to go down the, the face of the mountain yeah it was really really tricky sailing in the med
1: yeah yeah very flaky. One other one I can't quite resist. You talk about every boat has an air horn or something to sound <laughs> salutes or sound alerts, but you had a unique description for the air horn on Sakura Bleu.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So an average ship's horn is, you know, like just kind of deep and powerful and and we didn't have, we just had an air horn, which sounded like the yelp of a terrier yeah. instead of a instead of a bark of a great dame, which was, it just wasn't nautical at all. I, I kind of wish we had a cannon or something like that.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a little little embarrassing to have. I mean, she looked like a very elegant, lovely, you know, catamaran right, vessel yeah. and become, squeak. <laughs> <sweet>. So yeah, <laughs> sliding stately into port and they go. Yeah,
0: heads turn and they're looking for a rowboat or something. And then <laughs> there we are, right? It's yeah. like, aye, yeah yeah aye. aye.
1: Who are these guys? Sacra Blue is not the only ocean adventure you've had of late. You've also gone underwater at last. When did your dive in the Alvin Submersible happen?
0: That was in 2014. So right before you guys left. Yeah, I did a short movie on it. and That was kind of part of the book where I sent the movie to a film fest and all that. At the invitation of one of your other guests, Dr. Cindy Vandover over at Duke. I think she's been a guest on your show as well.
1: Mhm.
0: She was looking for a "quote unquote cartoonist in residence on um, Alvin."
1: That would be Cindy. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. She's definitely likes mixing arts and sciences and uh thinking outside the box and all that. So, I got the chance to dive 2 miles deep in the Gulf of Mexico. And that was that was an amazing experience as well. It was a lot like not that I've been to outer space, one of us has but one of us hasn't. <laughs> but it must be like what being in an alien world, I guess. For example, as soon as we touched bottom two miles deep, the skipper turned the turned the lights on, the pilot turned the lights on, and up in the darkness was a big, thin squid. Wow. A big, thin squid, as you know, is, is it's big. <laughs> Not just the fins, but the whole animal is probably 50 feet long. The body's maybe three feet tall. Giant fins, as you might expect. Giant eyeballs. It's shocking pink. The tentacles were sort of spread out all over the place. So I saw the light illuminate the shocking pink completely. One of the most alien animals on planet Earth, right, living in one of the most alien places on planet Earth, and I felt like I was on Mars. And this thing was like this monster hovering in the in the night sky. Um, And it was like, wow, you're not in Kansas anymore down here. Kind
1: of like a UFO.
0: (laughs) Exactly. No, it was amazing. And then one of the other sights we saw was a bag of garbage two miles deep, which shouldn't surprise us.
1: Plastic bags get there before we do nowadays.
0: Exactly. Yeah. But we saw tube worms, the forms of life that rely on chemosynthesis instead of photosynthesis to live. We saw the Florida escarpment, which is basically a a grand Canyon sized cliff. We sat at the foot of it and this this cliff goes up to about a few hundred feet uh, below the surface of the water. So the cliff is, Thousands of feet tall, like an underwater Grand Canyon. Wow! You know, and it made it made me fascinated with underwater landscape symmetry, and I I put some of that in the book as well. Some of the landscapes we sail over that you know you can't see as a sailor, but you know they're there, and with you know the internet and bathymetric maps and so forth, you can you can appreciate them. But you know, sailing over the canyons in the Bay of Biscay, right? The sailing over the Mid-Atlantic Ridge uh, when we we're doing our transatlantic, the, the longest mountain range in the world, and these mountains are as high as the the Rocky Mountains. Um, yeah, and they're just
1: just but miles underwater, so we don't think about them.
0: And you can't go down there and light them up and look at them. You can only really only imagine
1: them. Yeah, well, there have been a couple of TV shows. I forget which production outfit put it on. But, you know, Drain the Ocean, where they
0: yeah. National Geographic does Yeah, CGI,
1: yeah. computer generated imagery, they drained it so you can start to, you know, it's the graphical representation. It's the Google Ocean representation, You're not really right. in the geology. But the other thing that's cool about the, the underwater topography, uh, I was just, a, through the month of September, spent time at sea as well on a, a Nat Geo ship, sailing from Norway to Jan Mayen and Greenland and ending in Iceland. But just like you talked about the catabatic winds that get funneled down valleys and create these you know, unexpected bursts of wind out on the ocean in the Mediterranean, you get a similar effect underwater with currents. If you huh. get a, a canyon incised into Florida Escarpment, for example, if there's a canyon cut in that wall, that'll affect how the currents move. And when you affect how the currents move, you affect where food is. And when you affect right. where food is, you affect where critters like whales and others will come to feed. So we were at a Along the northwest coast of Norway, there's a one of those big canyons underwater, cuts up mm-hmm. in towards the shoreline called Blake Canyon. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, right right around the top of that and the upper reaches of it, that's where you're going to find the whales. You know, water's right. upwelling and bringing nutrients from down below, and some of the little stuff they eat on concentrates where the nutrients are, so they concentrate at the same place. Magic how that works.
0: Yeah, it's something I discovered when I was – Ten or twelve, we were flying over the Bahamas in a in small plane, and I just saw the landscape because the water was crystal clear. You could see the landscapes, you could see the, the coral reefs and the grass fields and, and everything. And you, you you realize that the seventy percent of the world that's covered with water has got just as much detail and intricacy and and wildlife as as the other thirty percent. It's just yeah. kind of hard to see.
1: It's a little harder to get to. Yeah, it was your flying over the Bahamas experience, if I remember correctly, that put the spark of imagination in your mind about, eventually became Sherman's Lagoon.
0: Right. Yeah. I saw, I actually saw a shark in a lagoon or a cove or whatever. That was the shark. And it, it really sparked my, my interest in sharks and my fascination with them as a kid. So I started drawing cartoon sharks when I was that age.
1: Go back to Alvin. Tell me more about your overall memories and sensory impression. I mean, like most submersibles, the business part of it is a sphere, usually around right. five, five, yeah. or five feet-ish, two meters or so, two and a half meters of diameter with thick walls, you know, three or four inches thick. And you're when I dove in Alvin, which again was courtesy of Cindy Lee Vandover, it was just the sphere and electronics and stuff inside. And you basically sat cross-legged on the floor, partially bent because your body was yep. fitting to the curvature of the sphere when I dove with Victor Viscovo, Victor had the good grace to put actual seats in his submersible. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't come back quite as creaky and bent after 12 hours of right. sitting on the, the curved floor. You dove in the updated Alvin. Yep. Tell us more about being inside of that sphere.
0: Well, I'm happy to tell you it has seats now. So, okay.
1: <laughs> customer service improvement.
0: <laughs> right. It still does not have heating or a bathroom. So that's those are the two things they could still use because it is a long time. It's a 12 hour round trip. It's, oh, I think it was about four hours, five hours, maybe six down and almost as slow coming up. And then we spent a couple hours on the bottom. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is basically the whole thing, as you know, is it looks like a sort of looks like a submarine on the outside, but it's really, it's a lot of stuff attached to this really thick titanium sphere, which is, you know, the life space in, in right. that, in that submarine. And there's, there's only I think three or four holes in that sphere, and, and there's three for ports and there's one for the hatch on the top.
1: Three three for looking out of for viewports, right? And exactly. one for climbing viewports. in and out of, yep.
0: Exactly. And the engineering, there's some YouTube videos on it if your listeners are fascinated with making that sphere because it has to be perfect, perfectly spherical to hold that pressure. And so the, the machining of that titanium spheres is, is, is amazing. So after I wrote on Alvin, I, I took a look at a lot of these videos and I just, wow, it's it, there's just as much, and you're, I think probably the only person on the planet who, who can really make this comparison, but there's probably just as much technology and team effort in, in launching an Alvin as, as there is in going into outer space. It's just, it's an incredible team effort. There's so many engineers behind it, this giant team of scientists, engineers, and other people that make that work. It's just amazing.
1: Yeah. It's a slower speed ballet, but it's yeah to, to do it repeatedly, to do it safely, it's got to be ballet at the sort of Bolshoi ballet caliber of performance. Everybody in their place hitting their marks, everything dovetailing, everyone alerts to if something starts to go not quite right on stage, you know, everyone has to be alert to that and adapting to it to keep the performance moving along. Yeah, hopefully in a way that has the audience not even noticing that you had to do it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And that's a big difference between an Alvin dive and our cruise on the boat, because obviously those stakes were a lot lower on the boat, but you didn't have to go out with a perfect plan. You really had to improvise. That was a necessary part of cruising. Yeah. And with the Alvin dive, there's no improvising. There's there's plan A through Z. Right. There's no improvising allowed on that yeah. and for, for a lot of good reasons.
1: Well, you know, we have a similar array of plans, of course, in space flight, in the shuttle mm-hmm. era. But the one thing we understood was that you can't be too completely rigid about the, what you just said about improvising. Mm-hmm. And so our motto was plans are nothing. Planning is everything.
0: Ah if you right. make
1: yourself think it through and then think about, well, what if this and what if, and and really sit still and think it through with some care. So mm-hmm. you tease out all the interdependencies. You know, if it was that electrical circuit that failed, then this and so and the other. And if, But on the other hand, if it was something else, how do we still get it done? How do we still get home safely? How do we still get the mission done? Uh, and you think all that through, and you can write it all down. You can write down what do you do if circuit A fails? But if circuit A actually fails in flight, back to your cascade point, It'll probably be in addition to one or two other things that you did not factor into your circuit A plan. And now you've got to look at your circuit A plan and think about the other stuff. The actual situation we're in is that it's not circuit A alone. It's now this plus this plus this and circuit mm-hmm. A. And so you've got to still be adapting that plan. And so the corollary to the plans are nothing motto was there's only two ways to screw up a procedure. One is to fail to execute it exactly as written, and the other is to execute it exactly as written, <laughs> because right. the circumstances are different than what you anticipated when you wrote the plan out.
0: Right. Yeah, and you know, the, our pilot of Alvin Pat Hickey. He, I think it was. Oh yeah, Pat's 30, been around 000. forever. Yeah. yeah, Pat's been around forever, and that that whole team's been around forever. So if things do go wrong, he knew Alvin like the back of his hand, literally, and and he knew what all the circuits did and he was he's the kind of guy who's clearly capable of multitasking because you know right when circuit a blows you don't notice circuit a's blown you notice that the oxygen level is low because that's what circuit a controls right right so right. now you have low oxygen and a blown circuit and you know a sick person and blah 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 and you've got to like prioritize yeah as they say so the expertise is absolutely necessary so yeah. that you have that sort of latitude to improvise a little bit
1: yeah. And that's that depth and nuance of a lifetime experience that you were referring to earlier. So back in the day, is the bare metal inside of the sphere still exposed inside Alvin? The wall that you're seeing is just that gray metal.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm trying to recall. Like, yeah, it is. That's just that titanium wall on the inside. And it is cold. And when you eat breakfast that morning, you don't have any coffee because yeah. <laughs> you know you don't you're not. <laughs> You know, you're you're uh, sort of on your own for, for the next 12 hours.
1: And you actually have one glass of water with your dinner the night before if you're smart.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's there's certain sort of fundamental preparations you have to make for Alvin. There's a lot more video screens probably now than there were mm. video live video feeds. And, you know, getting back to my son's being distracted by the video world versus the live world there. You are tempted in Alvin to look at the video feed rather than look through the port. Because the video feed sometimes gives you a a much better picture.
1: A wider view, certainly. Yeah.
0: A wider view, but you know, I I could always look at the video tapes later. And so for me, I I really focused on looking at the port. And when you do look at the port, as you well know, it's the world that you see live, you know, right in front of you. It's not a boring world. There's there's animals there. We saw chimera, we saw octopuses. Crabs and uh, sea cucumbers and hydrothermal vents and tube worms and things like that. It's it's just a very different world, but it's a world that we really need to explore and get to know.
1: Did you draw? Did you drawing cartoons since since Cindy invited you to be a cartoonist in residence? You had to have done some cartoons, <laughs> right?
0: I did. I did a few cartoon series on going to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico in Sherman's Lagoon, and they met some of the deep sea critters there. They met a big fin squid and. Um, couple other things. So yeah. No, it was very inspirational for for a cartoon.
1: Yeah. Coming sort of towards the end here, I wanted to thank you for the inscription that you provided on the copy of Family Afloat that you sent me, which is Fillmore the turtle in a spacesuit, tethered outside a space shuttle, and then Sherman the shark <laughs> looking staring Alvin down yeah. in water on the bottom of the I mean that's it's a treasure. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Well you've seen a remarkable Elevation of, <laughs> of our planet—that's for sure—from yeah. from minus two miles to plus whatever thirty. Wow. Yeah, plus, I don't plus know. A yeah, <laughs> plus, plus a, a lot. Yeah, plus a lot. So you've got a unique perspective.
1: One other thing I was going to ask you back back in the olden days of Alvin, Pat Hickey, and the older round of pilots, if they had a newbie on board as an observer or a cartoonist, one of their favorite tricks was as you know your breath, your warm breath sort of warms the inside of the sphere a bit. and uh-huh. the Moisture moisture in it condenses on the inside of the sphere. And, it, you know, invariably it builds up enough moisture on the walls of the sphere that some drop will drop oh. off. <laughs> right? They just waited and prayed for one of those to hit yeah. the head <laughs> of yeah. a novice diver and get that, you know, look of abject fear <laughs> shoot across <laughs> their face. <laughs> and of course they only fed that, right? If they saw, yeah. oh, we're leaking! Yeah, and your know, heart rates would spike to... Hundred ninety or something like that before they would yeah. give you a laugh and let you know that you're really not going to die.
0: Yeah, well, Pat's delivery was so deadpan for you know everything the emergency procedures and it was sort of you know the calm execution of a Alvin pilot that when he did the drop did hit me um, on my <laughs> shoulder and Pat just looks over and he goes that's eh, just a little leak. <laughs> don't worry <laughs> about it. Yeah. We got a lot of those. You know the yeah. windows don't fit all that great, so it's like. <laughs>
1: They've made their technique a little more subtle. I'm glad to hear it's evolved.
0: <laughs> well, it's classic, classic Pat, you know. Yeah.
1: So what's the next adventure for
0: Jim Toomey? Oh, yeah. Trying to get my son in college is, is what I'm really focusing on right now. Other than that, we've got another catamaran coming into our lives in a couple of years. I don't think we're going to go out for two years, but we want to explore a couple other places we talked about going to the south pacific and i think we have enough sailing experience to actually launch from where we are now which is annapolis maryland go through the canal go out to cocos go out to galapagos so we'd like to try some bigger and better adventures now that we have a little bit of experience under our belt
1: so you sold Sacre Bleu. this would be an altogether new catamaran
0: Altogether new catamaran, we sold Blue because the mast is 75 feet and the, all the bridges around here are, you know, ICW standard 65 feet. So we- Oh,
1: intercoastal waterway. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We couldn't really go anywhere in this boat. It's really an open ocean boat. So uh, we got a, a powerboat. We went over to the dark side and got a powerboat, <laughs> but we want to get another, we already ordered another cat. So we're planning some big trips with that. Another French cat. Blue, we, we picked up as a lagoon catamaran built in, um, in Nantes, France, and uh, we picked it up in Les Sable d'Alone. And we may actually pick this one up in France as well and do the transatlantic in it. It's a bigger boat. We should be able to do it in a couple of weeks, I think.
1: So you and Valerie and the kids as crew, or you got Hornswoggle, some other people?
0: <laughs> We're going to pick up a third watch probably. Um, well, you need a third watch really for three weeks on the ocean. What
1: does that mean? Two more, four more bodies? So you have two people on watch?
0: Well, minimally, you need one more adult. So the watch system, you were in the Navy, so you you know it well, right? We did a four hour on, four hour off watch. So we we split the 24 hour days into three watches. So watch A comes on, watch B comes on, C comes on. And then so that this sort of goes down the line. So you have eight hours off and four hours on. And that's kind of a standard watch system when you're out at sea for you know long periods of time. Yeah, that would be very difficult with just two people. You know, four yeah. on, four off, four on. It would be exhausting. Yeah.
1: So you have your sights on a competent sailor to take along. You're just going to commandeer someone.
0: Right. We we live in Annapolis, so, Maryland. Throw the docks is, of
1: Annapolis and grab yeah, a likely I mean, candidate.
0: Just throw a stick and you'll hit six competent sailors, and and a lot of them have written the books that you see on the on the shelves of of the sailing you know section of your bookshop. So. Yeah, there's a lot of expertise out there.
1: Well, keep me posted on that new cat. Yeah, maybe I'll catch you mid Pacific at some point, and we'll try to do a Zoom interview from the middle of the ocean.
0: And if you're interested in a transatlantic, we'll maybe reach out to you in a couple of years. It would be great to get you know some of your sea stories on on a watch one night.
1: I think my dogs would sue me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't, we could take the dog, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> or two.
1: Well, it's always a delight to talk with you and get your stories. I'll plug it one more time because it's just a delight to read Family Afloat, Two Years Sailing the World with two kids and two captains. And, you know, it is a a marvel that you've come home a more tightly knit family (laughs) and and not divorced and estranged. So so hats off to you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. It did come unraveled every now and then, but we ended up with a tight knit anyway.
1: (laughs) That's a wonderful tale. And thanks for sharing it with us.
0: Thank you, Kathy. It was really a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much
1: for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com.